Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. Okay, welcome to another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. I am lucky enough to again have Jay Woodruff on with me. We've talked about disability justice a little bit on our show. We've never dedicated a full episode to it. And I think it's an important discussion to have, especially in the context of where the NDP is on some of the key issues around disability justice and where the left as a movement is. And I don't think it's going to be pretty. I think there's a lot of issues that we're doing really well on, but when it comes to disability rights and advocating for what disabled people need and the language that we use around it, uh, we're falling a little bit flat. So Jay, thank you so much again for joining us. Your perspective is always very enlightening, especially when we're talking about advocating for better, more progressive policies inside the NDP. Can you just take a moment and introduce yourself, remind us how you know all of these things and where your experience has been? I am a federal NDP executive by way of being co-chair to the NDP Disability Committee and Accessibility Committee, as well as a council member, um, a writing association president, and campaign manager, and every aspect of the NDP that you can take part in, I have tried my best to take part in. And it's not been easy. No. No, no, I'm, I'm kind of privy to some of Jay's uh, struggles to have the party take better positions on certain issues and uh, to make politics more accessible in general. I'm, I thank you for that work. I don't know how you continue to do it, but we're going to dive into a bunch of that work in the episode. It is important. I do want to give people a bit of an idea of some of the key issues in terms of policy that we could do better on. I think I'm being really kind there. I, I, I found myself uh, trying not to be too critical. I'll let you kind of give that perspective. You teach me throughout this episode, as I usually have my guests do. But we, we've kind of sectioned off four critical policy items that I think demonstrate just how poor we've been at drafting really good policies. So the four issues we've kind of wanted to examine here. We're going to start off with ODSP. That's what we call it here in Ontario. That's the Ontario Disability Support Payments. They don't support much. Um, it's legislated poverty. Jay, I'm sure you can attest to similar. I, I don't have all of the exact numbers. I don't think numbers tell the accurate story, but it's bad right across the country. There's no real adequate support in terms of these payments for anybody. Um. Can you give us a little bit more insight on just how restrictive ODSP is? So the Ontario Disability Support Program Act is um, it's a program of last resort, which means you have to, they, they will tell you, ask friends and family for money. What all do you have that you can sell? Um, if you're, there's, there's so many different aspects just to the applying, which is, 
why I'm here right now because my story started with them telling me I had to exit my daughter's life just to apply onto a program that is very infamous for trying to reject as many people. So th there's every aspect of this program from if you have dietary needs, you have to beg for it, prove it, always validate. If you have uh, mobility aids that you need replacing, you have to beg for it, fight for it, advocate for it. There's It punishes relationships where you can lose your benefits if you have a roommate. And there are many people who have roommates because you can't have relationships because it punishes anyone that you're in a relationship with. It's it's called the Disability Support Program, but it's actually a forced conservatorship. And that's the best way I can explain it because it controls everything. And it constantly wants you to validate your doctor's prognosis or diagnosis. I'm not sure the proper word for it. I want to just point people towards if they want to see or read some lived experiences of people on ODSP. The hashtag ODS poverty, I think, is a one place to start. I think it, it also accurately describes what it is. But yeah, the you also see reference. Jay mentioned it, that it punishes people for being in a relationship. You'll see references to there is no marriage equality under ODSP. And, and that's what Jay was talking about there, that you don't get two sets of benefits, right? That you're cut off in a sense. So... The list of issues with ODSP is long. On top of that, Ford's take on it is just absolutely abhorrent. I think it speaks to, you know, a larger societal problem, but Ford's been quoted saying, you know, the best solution is for these folks to go and get a job. And during COVID, there was a $100 top up that ended quite quickly and when we compare that to the emergency benefits that went out to folks at $2,000, that's way more than ODSP. And this was just a temporary measure to get folks through a pandemic. And we seem perfectly fine having disabled folks live on much less all of the time. Three years ago, it was determined by the federal government that $2,000 was the minimum to survive. And still there's been nothing close to that to bring up the disabled programs. Well, we had a chance, right? We had a recent provincial election here in Ontario, and one would think that the Ontario NDP, being this, uh, the most progressive party on the ballot, apparently, um, had a really, really poor take on this. So, just I'll give people the numbers, but I want Jay to provide the, the reaction. It was initially their position was a 20 percent increase to ODSP. This would still put people in legislative poverty, and it didn't even cover the cuts that Mike Harris had made to the program when he was premier. And I think that shocked a lot of people. Jay, did it shock you to see that come out on paper? It pissed me off. It, it was, I want to say it's shocking, but the NDP has a history, so the, the shock is, is kind of lessened. But I didn't hear them say they were going to raise it 20%. I heard that they are going to still let us be in 80% of the suffering. And that's the way that policy landed when it was announced. 
is a party that talks as if the legislated poverty is unacceptable said, well, we'll make it 20% less abusive. And that's kind of, that was the reaction a lot of people, whether you're a part of the NDP or not, found that. Because the only party that said that to double it was the only party that had no chance of forming government. So right off the bat, the disabled community found the reality of their future. Jay's talking about the Ontario Greens. They came out with a, yeah, double the rates, which is what the community has been asking for for some time. This advocacy didn't start in the lead up to that election. This has been a problem for decades, and it should have been clear to the the NDP exactly what people need. I want to remind folks, like, they have a disabled committee, right? It's got a longer name than that, but it's elected people from the disabled community put into a committee that should be utilized to come up with better policies than that. We're going to get into why that doesn't happen. But yeah, I I agree with you. Even I'm not on ODSP, but I was shocked and even knowing their history, I was still shocked because I thought it was a really bad political move, too. It was their time to shine, especially when Greens are always, you know, biting at their heels, always trying to outflank them and, and appear to be more progressive. They certainly were outflanked on this one. And what people don't realize, I think, is the level of work that's done on all of these campaigns, these local campaigns, by disabled members of the NDP. And this was a huge blow in terms of enthusiasm for the party as well. Because, I mean, that's where a lot of hopes lie, right? To change this policy was the NDP would take a good position and then win. Uh, we didn't get either. When, when we see the results of the election staff, because this is something a lot of people weren't really focused on. There were so few staff for Elections Canada during the federal election and provincially. That's because the disabled community makes up a very large portion of the volunteers. Same with political campaigns, because for the disabled community, there are policies that are forcing us to suffer and there's a society not demanding that it change. So if we're involved in making sure people vote and making sure people can vote, because there's no, there's no disabled community member who will not say, hey, this thing here, this is not accessible. A lot of people were complaining about the accessibility and safety of polling places. Well, that's probably because the disabled community who were unable to access these pa these places or were afraid of catching COVID were not there. So the presence of the disabled community is also a, uh, a check and balances. And it's interesting that people were complaining about access to things like polling places or, or just different and it's sorry my thought just expanded to the whole pandemic and how people have been so unbelievably impacted by accessibility because that's the number one thing the pandemic has done 
and people not realize how important the word accessibility is. They think, for some reason, people picture accessibility being a wheelchair and a ramp and not realizing the true depth of accessibility and that it's not a disabled-only issue. But there's so many different ways that ODSP punishes you and that we had uh, in Ontario some members of the NDP go on a um, ODSP diet and well on one hand people people will hear that and go well at least they're calling attention to something but if you're doing it as a performative thing, you don't have the mental health impact. You don't have the physical impact. You don't have the months, years leading into that. You don't have the accessibility issue of getting to that food that you can't really afford and getting to the food bank and hopefully being able to get there. So, or, or get food back from there. I don't drive, so if I can't afford a cab, they limit me to how much I can take because they will give more to someone with a car than someone on feet. So it's such a total impact. And instead of focusing on the abuses of the program, they went, well, here, look at us on this diet. Like, no, look at us on this diet. Look at the disabled community forced to suffer. And I, I experience this and everyone experiences this. It's more of a... A thing where if we don't have that performative thing, no one pays attention. You talked about hashtag ODS poverty. When we first organized that, it was to try and help people tell the stories of ODSP because people were afraid to talk about it, get kicked off the program, get any kind of repercussion. And it, it exploded because so many people wanted to talk about the true issues. Yes, the money needs to be raised, but that is a part of it. And then that's been going on for three years. It's still going on. So imagine three years of a hashtag trending in a province frequently with thousands upon thousands of people sharing horrible stories. But what happens is a couple of MPPs go on a performative hunger, not hunger strike, but poverty diet, and news is all over it, like they're heroes. I'm glad you brought that up, <laughs> because I've got to own it a little bit. You know, I felt like that as well when I finally saw it, just because, you know, I'm trying to defend myself, <laughs> just because they had not spoken really about it at all for so many years. And I had seen the advocacy being done to try to get them to even fucking say disabled, right? Like they won't even say that half the time. And so here they were trying to amplify just how hard it was to live on ODSP. And I even retweeted Monique Taylor of all people. I had a, such a lapse in judgment and I said, you know, finally, you guys are, are really talking about this. And um, quite quickly, you know, it just it, you know, I was listening. I was reading the feedback as well. And I realized, like, no, this is 100 percent performative to the point where it, that particular MPP advertised that she took the last uh, marked down loaf of bread 
meaning somebody who's actually on OWS, Ontario Works, or ODSP, or who's just, you know, working poor, could not come in and get that bread. And so I, you know, felt really stupid. But I think that speaks to that kind of mixed reaction that you even had, like, what do you need to do? There's far more effective ways to do that. But it was like, finally grateful that something was being done. But it was just, that had a lot of political back lash as well. Uh, it quickly ended, right? We only saw them go grocery shopping. We didn't see any follow-up, right? We didn't see anybody actually trying to pretend that they were malnourished, right? Or that they couldn't get where they needed to go anymore because it was just a farce. And also, I think there were a few MPPs that actually called it out. And I think, yeah, they put an end to that quite quickly. But again, like with all the other things that we're going to bring up, it's one of those moments where if you had taken two seconds to consult, meaningfully consult, the disabled community within your own party, they would have avoided both of those really bad calls. They would have been flooded with, oh, no, don't do it. Another thing to keep in mind, and you kind of touched on it, is during the early stages of the pandemic, the NDP were focused on long-term care. Everyone in long-term care is disabled. They are not all elderly, but the party would refuse to talk about the disability. They refused to acknowledge that it was 18 years and plus. Everyone in long-term care is disabled. That's why they're there. But as a result of that, as a result of starving people and or, or starving people of recognition, the performative shit really was like, oh, if you talk bad about it, then they're not going to talk about ODSP again. You can't criticize it. You have to support it. So in the community, it was a mixed, like there was a battle because there were people who were so desperate for the party to talk about ODSP in a real way and message and, and focus. But at the same time, if you if you don't prop it up, this performative thing that's not doing any aspect of it justice, well, then why would they ever do it again? Not the performative stuff, but talk about ODSP. Because we went through like two years of a pandemic with them. And I want to be fair, individual MPPs and MPs and MLAs are doing a very good job of talking about disability but it as a party structural message and as a focus and the leaders of most of the iterations of the NDP disability is a bad word it seems to be yeah it's either not said or it's said at a different level right it's almost whispered you know I don't know if you've noticed Jay but twice you've brought up this theme of kind of being grateful so shut the fuck up you know like I don't want to talk about how bad ODSP is because even though it's bad I need it and I don't want to get kicked off of it or I don't want to criticize the party that's at least talking about ODSP because they might stop or you know I don't want to and we've not even been talking 20 minutes and twice that's come up I wonder if that's, you know, by design to make folks beg for something 
starve them from something, and then when they get just just not even enough, but some, that's enough to make them obedient, so to speak, you know, to stay in line. That, that's externally and internally, right? So, so the, the performative crap they were doing, from a nonpartisan perspective, imagine being hundreds of thousands of people on ODSP and seeing that, and then trying to convince them that the party actually cares. So as an organization, as a political organization that it, it survives on volunteers, the disabled community is one of the most the dedicated volunteer bodies out there. Our lives depend on a party that will actually help us, but still they choose to send the message of, oh, look, a couple of our MPPs they went on a diet taking, like you said, taking the food that you, the only food you'd be able to afford because they were doing this performative act. But then at the same time, if I criticize that, it disincentivizes. I don't know if that's the proper way of saying that, but it, it gives them the excuse to go, well, the disabled community didn't support us, so why would we bring it up again? And I'm not saying that as a hypothetical. That has been said. Oh, that that doesn't surprise me at all. Like politics is such a tit for tat game. And, you know, if they're polling not polling well with the disabled community, then they might as well just not care. Right. That's what it goes with pretty much they every other demographic. Well. Yeah. ODSP isn't the only place the NDP have taken a really bad position on a policy. And I think the next one we're going to talk about might surprise some people. And. Not if you've really been listening, though. Uh, Lulu did talk about this when we talked about um, the foundations of autistic resistance. But the party's position on MAID, medically assisted death. Um, now, I think a lot of po folks will be sitting here going, well, that's a progressive position, right? The party released statements that folks were suffering, they weren't getting access when they needed it, that there were too many criteria and they supported an expansion of this criteria for assisted death to include people who did not have a foreseeable imminent death. This also includes people with mental health issues. The, the reality of MAID is it is a compassion program. It is needed. But the conflation between the compassion behind the creation of this program and the fact that it is being sold as a solution to the forced poverty of the disabled community. And it's not even because of a disease or disability or anything other than the fact that people who cannot find a safe space to live are applying and it's acceptable with the expansion. So when you have when you have politicians talking about how anyone who needs it should have access to it, that is accurate. It's a compassion program for people who need it. But what about all the people who only need it because of policies and legislated poverty? They don't need it. They need help. And this is the conflating thing. And I, I've been stuck in this battle for some time where there are people who, when I talk about this, 
Oh, you're against me. You're a horrible person. No, I am against it being used to solve as a solution to the forced poverty and suffering of the disabled community and not just by legislation but society as a whole and another thing is because this narrative has gone on and not really been challenged outside of the disabled community not too long ago there was documents from or or i don't know how to properly articulate this but there were out of quebec there's talk about expanding me to children, babies, so that made is accessible. I'm, I'm trying hard not to say it's being like you full on eugenics is, is being a part of the narrative now. So I, I hope the reality of that to people who may not have known kind of is a, a kick in, in the teeth because society needs it. Yeah. And I think there is issues that people do take. I think justifiably so with parts of the expansion to include people with mental illness, with no foreseeable death, without first ensuring that supports are there, right? We know mental health care isn't generally covered by OHIP or other provincial health care. Much of it is reliant on having insurance or out of pocket. And there's a real lack of services available, waiting lists for treatment even that is covered. And so to advocate and to push for this type of solution without making sure that the supports are there, even just in within the healthcare realm. But like Jay said, 100%. And if you go on ODS Poverty and you use that hashtag for MADE as well, like trigger warning, there are some heartbreaking stories out there, but they are the reality of people that are living on ODSP and other similar supports that have been denied basic accommodations, especially when it comes to adequate housing. They can't afford the medications that would help alleviate some of their symptoms. And these are all societal problems. They are not directly related necessarily to their disability, but our refusal to account for them, to support them. And instead, we're offering suicide as the only other option. And rather than take a progressive position and again, listen to the disabled community within their ranks, the NDP fully put, helped push this through and have not backpedaled or really raised many concerns since, even though we are seeing it play out, like Jay said, like folks are getting approved very quickly for MAID after being denied ODSP for months, years. That is that is 100% eugenics, that we're making it easier to access assisted death than we are assisted living. An another aspect of that, and this is something that is, it's been torture there's a global pandemic and even though because of how human beings are we're kind of adapting and normalizing it and pretending it's not an issue daily there's still updates about the death toll and the death toll is it, it is mainly people with pre-existing conditions and most 
Like for me, I have immunosuppressants because I have autoimmune diseases. So do I stop taking my immunosuppressant and let my disease progress? Or do I take it and make COVID more likely to kill me? So these types of realities that everyone faced because everyone became immunocompromised when the global pandemic was declared. People have had accessibility issues. They've had struggle affording food. They've had struggle keeping a roof over their head. And they are demanding things changed everywhere. It's talked about inflation, inflation, inflation. The interesting thing is, if inflation is now making life unaffordable for you, first off, cancel Disney+. Plus. Second of all, realize that the disabled community has been forced, forced, forced by legislation that's enabled by society because it, it's not dealt with it's not called out it's not a focus so i i just one after another the disabled community is seeing everybody talking about issues they've been screaming about begging people to care about and now that it's being talked about they're still excluding the disabled community every aspect of help and support has excluded the disabled community of things they have been begging for and it's it's one of those things where like this is my reality that I've lived for the last few years is seeing it's it's one after another like oh you get it now oh wait you don't oh you get it no you don't so it's the mental and this is another thing about made before we move on from that is if you allow people and I'm using that specifically because you meaning society and government allow people to starve they're not just hungry there's mental health there's physical health you you depress people and then go hey if you're depressed or if you force them to live on such little amount that they could never find a safe place and, and go, oh, well, you can't find an accessible place or a healthy place. All of the complaints that the disabled community have been yelling about and begging about and just suffering, the non-disabled community has been now asking for those same considerations, but they're not being expanded into me. It, it's, it is such a, to me, it is a targeted attempt to use a program intended for compassion to force people into desperation because like you said when when you do not offer a solution to the suffering that you are creating and allowing and then say well you, you can kill yourself somehow people don't realize how messed up it is that we allow that to happen I don't care who you voted for. You allow it to happen because it's a societal thing. It's not a partisan thing. And even for folks that aren't contemplating made, I think when you pair that with our lack of adequate response to COVID, it's sending a real message to disabled folks. You know, it's it's you keep bringing up society and yeah, we can nitpick on parties and specific policies. 
But there is such an entrenched ableism throughout society that allows this to happen. And it's really been felt, I think, in people's indifference, I think, to the severity of COVID, particularly its impact on the disabled community, immunocompromised folks that still cannot leave their home without such risk. And that, like, and I read it, I can't feel it, I don't know it, but I, I read it and I hear it and it's very painful to hear what that feels like to be discounted as, you know, what you use the term pre-existing conditions. You know, that's a way of saying disabled, right? And we've found a, a, a euphemism to include when we're talking about these deaths but it's very impersonal way to talk about it. And it's very dismissive, don't you think, right? Isn't it like, it, it feels like they don't really count. Like it's like an asterisk. Like, oh, it's 100 people have died, but don't worry, 80 of them had pre-existing, 80 of them had pre-existing conditions as though that's okay. That was, that was an okay number. A very key example of what you were talking about is how like all of society got really pissed off about the situation in long-term care. How dare we allow our elderly population to be treated like that? Well, no, it's, it's not elderly. You're actually for the first time ever, like really on a mass scale advocating for the disabled community to stop being abused. But you don't even realize it because well, you have to remove disability from that because people, society does not give a shit. There's no compassion or empathy when you talk about disability. But if we talk about elderly, because there's, there are elderly folk who are running like marathons and deadlifting and there's an elderly Olympics and stuff like that. They're not living in, in long-term care. The people, everyone living in long-term care is disabled. And society went, well, if you're old and disabled, we care. Everyone else, shut up. The party had to sell. And and, and they would openly explain this right to us as we complained in the, the more closed circles that it needed to be packaged as grandma and grandpa and their children, because often we're not even actually talking about them, but the families, right? Like we're talking about the people outside the long-term care that are missing them and, and, you know, how hard it is on them. So to be honest, I don't think they were really even advocating. It was that emotional, like grandpa, grandpa and, and nothing else. And this continued, I mean, up until even Merritt declared her run for leadership and started tweeting out again about long-term care and still using that same language, despite all of the feedback that they've had absolute erasure when you talk about long-term care and and COVID. I think even the most progressive parties we've seen in, in BC reacted really poorly to COVID, real laissez-faire attitude to not just the deaths, but what we now know is long COVID, which is creating more disabled people for us to leave out in the lurch. You know, I had this last policy item that we're going to talk about and it's supposed to be the bright spot, but from our pre-talk, I know you're already, you're already going to teach me otherwise. There has been some movement on the fe federal disability benefit. So rather than have everybody 
dependent on these really poor provincial governments that are not adjusting their rates. A federal disability benefit has been touted as the solution by the Liberals. And to we see the NDP is supporting this bill. It's making its way through. I'm not sure what stage it's at. But Jay, is this not a solution? Okay, and, and just for a bigger um, lead into this, in 2019, I started writing a House of Commons petition that was presented in 2020. Or, sorry, early 2020, um, I, I created... Um, So I started just trying to create a new federal disability benefit, but then COVID came and CERB came. So now I had like actual things that I I could use as a a basis. So I changed it in 2020 to be anyone excluded from the minimum financial qualification, because we forget that the way they excluded so many people is by saying, did you earn the right to survive the pandemic? And since that petition, I have been involved in the NDP by way of the Disability Committee and Executive and Council and so on. And I have followed this very deeply. I I have access to, well, everyone has access, but I am an internal member of a party, so I have access to the critic, I have access to MPPs and staff and so on. So I'm, I've been following this very, very, very closely. And <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> so it's that committee now. And for people who don't understand the process, it, it was brought forward for reading and they were doing the grandstanding of making those if you ever watch the House of Commons or Par Par View, um, or any highlights on on news, if they actually care to cover stuff, it, it's the thing where one politician stands up and says, "Here's a one up on you comment," and then the other one stands up and, "Oh, here's a one up on you," and none of it actually means anything. And it's just the performative side of politics where you have the people in the background shaking their head like. The, the government of Canada purposely excluded the disabled community from any help. There was the $500 disability tax credit that very few people got. But this, this, this government has allowed the disabled community to suffer and excluded them, expanded made, and now in, or not now, but when they were in um, the House of Commons, they're sitting there talking how much they care about this, how badly they want this to move forward, so on and so on. So when people see that and they're not following, they think, hey, good on on the Canadian government. But now that it's in committee, this is where the details can be worked out. And what the Liberals tried to do was pass a blank document that they would be able to fill in themselves. And at committee, you have members of each party discussing how to create this, and they can bring in testimonies from individuals or organizations and so on. Well, the Liberals have six members of that committee. The Conservatives, I think it's three or four. Uh, The NDP has one. 
and they are the the NDP are allowed to have less uh, testimony, the call on less testimony, and so on. So when you look at it, the Liberals are currently crafting a disability benefit that's not actually going to be a benefit. And the first thing right out of their mouth is who they're going to exclude. And they're going to make it not an income replacement. So instead of eliminating the provincial programs that cause all this abuse and taking those people and putting them on a a disability benefit federally or just expanding CPP disability, they're now creating something. And and the first argument and, and the biggest argument is who's going to be on it. And they will not be an income replacement, which means they will not give this benefit to anyone who will have it clawed back. So you're excluding anyone, the 500,000 plus in Ontario. Um, And so just there's so many levels to it where I've been fighting for this. I've been following this. And now at the current state, like I try to make sure that people don't get their hopes up. I have to try and continuously remind myself not to get my hopes up because there's the reality that is based on how society and politics has reacted to COVID and it was fuck the disabled community. You still spend a lot of energy inside the NDP, especially comparatively. You know, a lot of folks tag in on campaigns, maybe donate, whatnot. I mean, you're in the thick of it a lot. And I want to hear from you. Like, what is your role inside the party? Like, what did you envision it? And and now what is it? Because anybody who's listened to you in the last, like, 40 minutes or so, it's it's not looking good, right? Like, even with progressive governments or access to critics, we're still seeing really inadequate policies introduced at our level, being passed by the liberals that we're propping up. My role, so I can do a breakdown. As an executive, the executive's mandate is to concern themselves with the goals and priorities of the party, which I have said should be accessibility and the disabled community, which the rest of a majority of the executive has decided no by way of vote. So it's not me having a feeling, it's me going and tabling something that is voted down. Um, I sit on an accessibility committee and my whole point of trying to get that committee started was so that a guide could be, a a policy um, could be provided and crafted for uh, writing or constituency associations, however you call it, for nomination meetings for campaigns for council for party functions and so on to make them more accessible yeah yeah well not not just accessible because the the there's two unfortunately there's two things that i care about one is i care about people being able to participate so it's not just a disability related thing again like i said earlier when i talk about accessibility it's people kind of think of accessibility different So anyone who has ever wanted to go to council or convention who can't because it's in Winnipeg, it's in Toronto, it's wherever it is, and you can't 
afford to take the time off, you're in school, you have three jobs by now, like whatever the reason is that prevents you, that's an accessibility issue. Boom, a pandemic. And as I said, the pandemic has made everyone care about accessibility. So virtually, you can have more people take part. During the federal election, I took part in nomination meetings in every province and territory. And there were people donating to campaigns from other provinces and territories who would have never been able to do that before. Then you could, but most likely you're not going to really care about who's five provinces away running for the NDP. I've been able to take part, or people are able to take part on campaigns through uh, email, uh, or not email, text banks or uh, phone banks and so on. So accessibility has has been afforded first off to everybody and especially in the party so awesome they get it now let's actually here's the the blueprint for that and we weren't consulted about convention that's been announced for winnipeg and it's strictly in person and I have tabled multiple times at the executive setting the goals and priorities of the party to make it accessible, not just watch it, accessible virtual attendance and participation. And our policy state or our equity statement talks about including people and not preventing people from taking part, but they still voted down my demand to make it, or not, not even demand to make it, the demand to honor our policies that already exist. And the solution for the executive was, why don't you create a resolution and hope that it gets prioritized at the convention you can't go to so that other people who are not disabled or who are not requiring that accessibility can determine if other people should get that accessibility and hopefully it gets passed. And the whole absurdity of it is, if it passed during convention, how do we allow that accessibility for people to then go to that same convention? It's, it's that level of stupidity and ignorance and ableism. So then it gets suggested I take it to the policy committee. So I'm a part of the policy committee. And it's not relevant to the policy committee because the policies already exist. So then take it to council. But I've put forward a request to table it for council, and I'm being ignored. They're not even acknowledging it, as they being the president who, who sets the agenda and the national director who sets the president's agenda. So then by way of the disability committee, which I co-chair, this is about bringing members together. But no one really, like, we have waves of... There was 30 people and then they experienced the ableism and then there's five people. And then I go out and try and go to meeting, meetings, events, EDAs. I go to so many things to try and get people involved and included. But then they do get involved. I do include them. And then the party reacts the way I just explained where the ableism is like a, I think they view ableism as a cough cost-saving activity because they view accessibility as a cost instead of the investment of including thousands, thousands of people. But 
they encounter this and they leave and I understand and in fact I have been made to feel like a horrible person for bringing people into these situations because I have experienced in every aspect the level of ableism and it's I keep getting told the way to stop the ableism is to follow proper procedure. Well, that's the thing, is imagine, as a token to this party, because they've tokenized the equity committees, right? They use it as a recruiting tool. But reach out and find out how many times these different committees have met and what they've been allowed to accomplish. Not what they have accomplished internally in that committee, but what they're allowed to accomplish within the party. And you'll start to realize that it is a tokenization because there are two people who were elected in like coast to coast to coast to represent disabled members in the federal NDP and take their voice, their wants and needs and demands to the party I'm one of them and they ignore you they stonewall you they do that hyper-partisan stop saying that shit outside of the party because you're hurting the party instead of them acknowledging they're hurting the party by doing the things I'm talking about so that's that's the very basic info on that and I want that to be understood as I just went on a long rant covering a lot of things, and that's probably less than 1%. You've described like many different ways where it's become very difficult or it's been very difficult to get disability justice on the agenda, you know, whether that be in a political campaign or quite literally on the executive agenda. And, you know, you've given some acknowledgement to individuals that are doing the job, but you mentioned there's it's missing from a larger discussion right there's a collective action needed and in ontario we saw a big disruption occur with the general strike and i want to kind of get into that with you um because we kind of did on our twitter space when we were talking about the disappointment on how that build up to a general strike essentially fizzled out. And I know we'll take some heat for characterizing it that way, but I want to provide some perspective on folks that were called upon, members of the working class that aren't unionized, that maybe aren't working, were called upon to make that part of their, their drive, their movement, and still we... I think missed an opportunity. I think I agree with you when you were speaking in this, this Twitter space that we missed an opportunity to include other voices in Ontario that, that should have been ODSP. And if we look at labor in general, and I understand that unions are tasked with representing their members first, but as a, as a whole and historically unions have also been responsible for helping right social, social wrongs. And if legislated poverty isn't one of those social wrongs, I'm not sure what is. And I I want to give you space to talk about that, Jay. Start with your hopes around the general strike. So here's the thing is when talking about this, unions are very hyper protective. And 
it's very important that people understand we didn't have a strike location in my city where I live. I organized a rally for education workers so that our community could see it and understand it and so that I'm, I'm in a francophone riding so we have two of every school in a very small city. So we have over a hundred education workers here. I wanted them and their families to see that support. So if you go through this thinking, oh, you're anti-union, then that's just lazy or purposeful. <laughs> so the reality of a general strike and why it was so important to so many people, and you saw support from pouring in from every province and territory, from workers who were not unionized, from seniors, retired education workers and teachers and the disabled community, you saw support from everyone for a general strike, right? It quickly went from education workers being paid and treated respectfully to the vital work they do for the community or society. And it quickly became, holy shit, look at the amount of power and support. Let's get a general strike. Like that, that became the situation very quickly. And you had all these unions that had announced that, oh, next week we'll do a solidarity walk-off. That was going to be a general strike. A bunch of unions walking out. But for the unions, the focus was the notwithstanding clause. Getting their That's, bargaining rights back. Yes. Their, their rights is their human rights back. So imagine seeing this massive collection of power organized around, in this situation, 55,000 people whose bargaining rights were being um, abused or, or ignored. And then being one of the 500,000 plus in the disabled community going, hey, if this general strike happens, then as a society, we have the bargaining power to end some social justices. And think of anybody who has been left, I know we're focusing on disability, but anyone who has, who is enduring a social injustice, a general strike is using collective power for collective change. That's why it was so supported. But when the government here, for people who don't know, our premier is named Doug Ford. Doug Ford decided he would promise not to, like, to amend the legislation that repeal it. Them. He's going to repeal yeah. it. Yeah. So they're they're going to remove the piece of legislation that said that you have no bargaining rights, basically for for the very simplified version. So the union got what they wanted. The unions are claiming um, this massive victory, and now everything goes back to the way it was. So why is it so unbelievably disappointing? Well, that, that general strike was building up to bloodless, violentless. Revolutionary acts were happening without militaristic, like, pushback. It was so supported that 
Like, it, it was most of, if you look in history of general strikes, you have the, I think in Ontario there was one in the 30s where 500 furniture workers had, had gone on strike or something. That's considered a general strike in the 30s. In Winnipeg, general strikes normally equate to, to death and, and violence. We, we didn't have that threat. Like, it was, hey, what are you guys doing next Saturday? You want to have a general strike? Yeah, sure, let's have a general strike. Well, I don't think it happened all that simply, but... Well, no, I'm I'm simplifying just because it's easier for me to, to make it simplified because it's in the complexities that I started facing the, well, that wasn't the focus. You misunderstood the message. You didn't understand what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to take space on this episode to explain that, because I take issue with folks that, you know, labeled that hope as naive or even laughed at the suggestion that that general strike could have been used for anything beyond the notwithstanding clause or beyond this one collective bargaining agreement. And I think folks who pay attention to history and saw the mass mobilization of people understood the possibilities there, right? I I tweeted this morning something like, you know, we spend so much time creating these little sparks as activists, right? And you've heard Jay talk of the immense amount of work that the disabled community has gone to get people to prioritize ODSP and have struggled to even get it out of the mouths of the people that it that should have already been talking about it. And so when this situation came up, you got to think of all of those movements that have just not been able to get enough traction, to get enough noise, to get enough allyship, to be as disruptive as 55,000 workers paired with OPSU, paired with the potential of so much more, with the OFL's reach and the way that they called out people. Like that didn't happen for ODSP, even though these folks have been living in legislated poverty far below the work, those 55,000 workers, right? So in much more of a crisis than those workers, but yet didn't get the response. So when we saw fire burning, when we saw all that smoke, that's when we roll, right? That's when you start to at least try to capitalize on that kind of mobilization and, you could just feel that fire snuffed out at that press conference. I know that they handled themselves very well and they did push Ford back. That's really not what the episode is about. It's about all the people out there that weren't part of that collective bargaining agreement that felt any kind of f- future possible victories that had seemed so untenable a week prior that, 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 that came close to resembling the kind of situation we need here in Ontario for them to get attention for that kind of issue. And still, they, they were laughed. Like, essentially, the, the suggestion that that should have been included in any kind of demand or that the movement become about anything beyond the collective agreement was, was laughable to some folks. And I think that just did not sit very well with me whatsoever. And I think it comes from a misunderstanding of, not from our perspective... From Jay's perspective, it's not a misunderstanding of what the intent was. It was a rejection of what the intent was, that it should have been broader. It should have been more than that. I like to say that Labour withdrew its support of a general strike. And 
here's something to fully exemplify this um 24 years ago social services in ontario were changed 24 years odsp has been a forced abusive conservatorship there are 500,000 people i know who constantly are battling this 500,000 people constantly fighting this but it still exists but and and let's not talk about the many different chartered rights that are violated daily for those 24 years and and many plus like it the ableism has existed before it was legislated but the people fighting this and again anything because we're talking about a general strike now so anything that people have been fighting no matter how large the community is is not labor and if labor got together and did what they did for 55,000 people to have their bargaining rights and labor said those 500,000 plus should have the rights to live and not starve and I don't mean the internal programs that they do as a union or the things internally that they do if they threatened and went on a, a strike demanding ODSP be doubled that would change so much Right, because not only is that everyone I've tried to talk to think, oh, well, get involved and, and reach out to your MPP or, or vote, make sure you vote. Like, like the game of politics is for the privileged, right? It's not, it, it's not vote for change because every party was going to leave the disabled community suffering. They made that very clear. So, who 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 do I vote for? which party which abuser do i pick but i don't have a choice of society doing it society has that choice and labor is the largest collection of power in society if they if there was a general strike the disabled community were out there in mass supporting the kubi workers the education workers we were out there and then everyone else left the street and we we're sitting there going, well, wait, hold on. I thought solidarity was the chant of the day. So no union has threatened a, a walkout or a strike. And I don't care about what unions are and oh, the legal aspect. They went on an illegal strike for their rights. Go on one for the rights of 500,000 plus people. Like there is a social obligation that unions that have Basically, a union to many people outside of a union is a collection of power for the privileged in the working class. Because we cannot with the, the people who are left in poverty, the people who are not union, don't have anything close to the collective power of the unions. So I'm going to disagree with you. They have the collective power. They are just not organized in such a way, right? Like, because we asked why society hasn't come along. And if you look at unions, they have the same makeup as society, but they have the financial means and the organization to flex. I know you didn't like that word the other night, but to flex that power because half a million people, that's more than that. That's, that's definitely, that's 10 times the amount of workers that were on strike. 
the conundrum seems to be, and I don't have the answer, that's for sure. I don't expect you to have an answer, but if you can like feed into it a little bit, you can't get political parties to amplify this issue in a meaningful way. We can't seem to get labor to make it a priority um, because I guess it doesn't represent working people. I don't. Um, how do you achieve disability justice then? How do you get a population that who will all become disabled at one point in their life, likely, right? Most of us age to become disabled or through other means, you know, it, it's going to happen. Yet we still don't take this cause up as our own in general. You know, and I've asked the same question to Indigenous land defenders. You know, how do you get people to start doing the heavy lifting that's needed? Or how do you get it politically cool to talk about disabled issues? So this is... I'm trying to figure out the filtered way of saying this, the more palatable way of saying this. Well, the show's marked explicit, so... <laughs> so, uh, fuck Doug Ford. Um, so one of the things to, to realize for me is the language, and you talked about the language before, so the language of respectability politics, where... What I said, the critiques I had of unions, that gets met with anger and resentment and attacks. The language I used critiquing uh, the NDP internally and externally in their messaging and their policies gets met with the hyperpartisan attacks. And as a disabled advocate in these spaces, criticizing the fact that they are not doing good and that in many cases they are allowing or creating the issues that I am fighting I'm hurting the party I'm boxed out, I'm ignored, I'm treated like pure shit so every, so again, and this is why I like to always say this is a societal issue, I don't care what party that you vote for, as long as there are 500,000 people allowed to be abused that is a society thing. We as a society own that. And politics exists downstream from society. If society didn't allow it, no party would go against that. You'd have such massive issues. The majority of society, and this is the worst thing, right, is society needs to, to have a wake-up call. And I sure as fuck thought the pandemic was that wake-up call. I was probably one of the only people going, oh my God, this is going to actually change people's lives. We as a society are going to experience what the disabled community fears and experiences all day. How other people affect us. How accessibility is so important. How things becoming unaffordable affect everything. How important mental health is and what we truly mean by the all-encompassing effects of mental health but then what we saw society react to help everyone but the disabled so yeah people I, didn't make that connection jay you know that their experience in not being able to access what they needed 
they didn't draw those parallels to being disabled, right? Well, there was a lot of people who made a conscious decision of, well, if the disabled get help, I get less. And that's something else is I experienced a lot of people who view including the disabled community in spaces or in society as a thing that takes from them somehow. The old divide and conquer trick, it works even within progressive communities sometimes that, yeah, it's never either or. But I do appreciate you exploring this issue with us. I mean, as many of the topics we talk about sometimes an hour just isn't sufficient, will likely hold a Twitter space that's designed to get into some of these issues a little bit deeper. But I wanted to introduce this to folks, especially following the general strike, because I I witnessed some pushback there and along the lines of, well, what are you folks doing then to highlight these issues? And I want people to understand that it's certainly not a lack of effort. It's not a lack of organizing or it's not a sign that this isn't a crisis. Disability justice needs to be amplified or else folks are going to die and they are dying. It is at that point and has been for so long. And I'm very frustrated by the lack of take up that it's had in other communities. In the same way, we all understand that climate justice affects all of us in the same way that we understand capitalism is a problem and needs to be disrupted, we need to make disability justice part of that fight. And until we do, we are leaving an incredible amount of people behind. And we're just sitting in this ableism that folks are feeling to their core every day. And Jay helped us put a lot of that in perspective those policies are not exhaustive, right? What affects us, everybody, affects the disabled community. We chose those particular policies of MAID, of ODSP, of the Federal Disability Benefit, and our response to COVID as examples of when even we think we're doing something progressive, we're generally still leaving disabled people out. So I hope this episode was eye-opening to folks in some regard, probably maddening to folks who know that it's happening and just need to kind of hear it all over again. But, you know, let's start to ask the answer the question rather that I asked at the end on how do we then put disability justice at the forefront of what we're doing and include it as we do include other struggles? Because right now it's, uh, it's it. It's still in the margins, and that's unacceptable. Jay, do you have any final words you want to leave folks with? Yeah, I can actually say something positive to end it. Um, well, two things. As you've highlighted with the intersectionality, everyone will become disabled as you age, your cognitive function, motor skills, sight, hearing. They diminish. It's just a part of the human cycle. But when we look at the different ways that we have talked about these programs being abusive, 
the effect really does impact everybody because it affects healthcare. When you can't find food, you become malnourished, you go to an ER. And that, that cycle exists in so many different ways that it is genuinely beneficial to help people than to allow them to suffer. And it is bad. It doesn't take from you. It actually gives to you. And a lot of people should now understand what I mean by that with all the programs that were released by the government to help people get through their pandemic. And understand that I used to look at it as the pandemic forcing everything to be online and make it more accessible to me and others in the disabled community, I actually recently switched. My perspective is, thank goodness that the accessibility has been afforded to non-disabled so that they can come into our spaces because now that they are being included in our spaces, they will understand. And that's something that I have seen the largest empowerment, some of it empowerment, some of it the, the most desperation I've ever seen, or a mix of it, of disabled advocacy coming so powerfully. And as long as the disabled community is able to maintain these accessibilities and, and stop being divided amongst province and partisanship and just really, unfortunately, hammer home the, the hard messages of the reality of your life and what you're doing or enduring. But make sure that people start to understand the comparison of the pandemic and what they have and are going through and compare it to what you are asking for and quickly they will realize you are asking for nothing different than what they have been afforded. And it, it, it's become easier, I think, for people to understand because they've actually truly experienced it with the pandemic. But I digress. I do have a lot of people who are still worried about their own lives and don't see the value in it's compassion fatigue is at an all-time high and people will care more about what directly affects them and they don't think disability does. So again, thank you so much, Jay, for coming into this space. I totally agree with you on what the pandemic has provided because on a personal note, being included in those spaces that you're talking about has opened my eyes to my internal ableism and you know, there was a lot of language that I learned to shed from my vocabulary as a result, but using an accessibility lens to organize and do the things that I do has 100% come from disabled advocates welcoming me, welcoming me in those spaces and me learning from them as I do from you. Thank you. Like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff.
Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of Disruption.